as you prepare for both this interim season and especially for the season that will follow when you receive a new permanent rector, I know that only not only change but exciting growth is going to be a part of your future. You'll change and grow personally as followers of Jesus through this time. In Christ, our hope will change and grow, finding the vision that the Lord has for you in the coming seasons. But as I reflect on all that change and growth, my mind immediately went to, but what's the one thing, sort of the nugget at the center, the core thing that I hope and pray through all the growth and change and, and, and all that is to come, what is the one thing I hope that Christ our hope will always hold on to and never lose? Is it our worship? Well, certainly worship stands at the center of who we are and as a church, and rightly so. Worship, as the uh, uh, Westminster Divines put it, is the chief purpose or end for which humanity was created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So certainly worship is important, but by virtue of the fact that Christ our hope remains A, a church, and B, church in the Anglican tradition, I really have no doubt that worship will continue to form the, the rallying point, the central place of our gathered life or your gathered life. And so is it the community? Is it the, the small groups and Bible studies and book groups that, that form discipleship and learning and, and mutual care of one another? Certainly all those things are important too. But all those things are, seem to be going on quite well already without my interference. And I have no doubt that they'll continue. So what is the, the central feature of who Christ our hope has been and is, which I dearly hope and pray she will retain? Well, enter the text that I just read to you from Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, starting verse 41 this morning. If you have a Bible, you'll want to take it up and... Turn there with me. And here again, one of these Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, as always, understand that this text comes in a context. It comes right on the heels of some teaching that Jesus gave publicly, uh, actually teaching about his cousin, St. John the Baptizer. In the scene just before this dinner engagement, Jesus has publicly declared John as blessed among all men born of women because he was God's herald, the herald of, of the Messiah. But Luke finishes that scene with the editorial comment that while the people and even tax collectors, who were the most corrupt, vile, and therefore the most hated members of society, had embraced John's message and his baptism of repentance, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the self-appointed religious experts, had not embraced John's method or message. That sets the stage for this next scene in the home of one such Pharisee. 
Simon by name. He knows Jesus' position regarding John. He's among those Pharisees and, and lawyers who, according to St. Luke, quote, rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So while we don't know this man's motivation for inviting Jesus in for a meal, we can assume it's not necessarily from the purest or most altruistic of motives. Certainly there's some curiosity at play, but this man demonstrates that he's at least not sort of falling all over himself to impress or ingratiate or even be uh, quite hospitable toward Jesus. We learn from Jesus' later statements in verses 43 through 46 that Simon failed as a host, failed to give really some of the basic courtesies that were expected in that day. He didn't offer Jesus water to wash his feet, much less instruct a servant to do so, as would be expected when having a guest in your home. He didn't greet Jesus with the conventional Eastern fashion, offering him the kiss of fellowship. He didn't offer anointing oil for Jesus' head. Now, this would have been something reserved only for the highest of honored guests in a household, but still taken with the others, it's indicative that this man did not invite Jesus over because he esteemed him as a great rabbi. And it seems he didn't even necessarily esteem him as a uh, sort of a peer, a, a fellow student of the law. But then by contrast, Luke recorded for us the actions of this woman, a notorious sinner. We aren't told what it is that earned the woman her reputation. All we need to know is what Luke tells us. She was not heretofore a pillar of public morality. She was a notorious sinner. And being a small Galilean town, everybody in town knew it. And here's the great contrast St. Luke is painting for us. The religious leader who should have seen, or I'm sorry, should have been the consummate host to our Lord and then this marginal, infamous woman. The woman's overcome by being in the presence of Jesus. She's weeping, but she makes the most of it. She uses those tears to bathe the Lord's feet. The ancient uh, fathers and mothers of the church pointed to tears as a nearly sacramental experience of true repentance. She's weeping over her sin and her brokenness in the presence of holiness, in the presence of Jesus. Furthermore, she brought with her this precious gift of anointing oil in a semi-precious alabaster flask. Say alabaster, alabaster flask ten times. I've, it's difficult. Anyway, in Matthew's Gospel, though, we encounter a similar scene, whether it's the same scene told from a different perspective, we can't be sure, but what Matthew relates to us is that in the case of the story that he's telling, when a similar alabaster flask is brought forth, the disciples themselves are incensed by what they see as the waste represented by such a gift. We know from this that the sort of jar of oil that Luke is talking about, whether or not it's the same jar, is likely worth a year's wages. Can you imagine that? Imagine a jar of oil worth 60 or 70K today. 
today. What would you do if you had a jar like that? Probably sell it on eBay, right? But no, this woman breaks it open to pour it not even over Jesus' head, but on his feet. And she anoints him. Extravagant, passionate outpouring of emotion, of love, of gratitude. That is what Luke is building for us in this picture of this woman. That's what he intends us to see. And this, by contrast, is precisely what Simon the Pharisee does not see, does not appreciate. As we read in verse 39, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him, Simon, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Rather than being impressed or touched by the extravagant act, the Pharisee simply focuses on this woman's previous standing. And somehow he interprets it as an impeachment on Jesus' character and Jesus' claim to prophetic or messianic ministry. Somehow, even though everyone else in town knows about this woman, Jesus must not. He can't accept that Jesus does know and receives her anyway. If you recall the story of the Good Samaritan, you might remember the relationship between physical touch and the Jewish understanding of cleanness and uncleanness as it was practiced during that day. You remember in the story that Jesus tells that the, a man is beaten on a, on a desert road and he's lying on the side of the road and first a priest and then a Levite pass him right by, right? And they don't they, they don't even go over to the same side of the road. They don't want to touch him, presumably because they're on their way to Jerusalem to serve in the temple. And if they were to touch him and he turned out to be dead, then they would be defiled or unclean and wouldn't be able to serve their term in the temple. Well, similarly, Pharisees like Simon were fanatical about keeping their cleanliness, their purity. These are the guys responsible for developing these strict kosher regulations that went way beyond what God ever articulated through Moses. They went miles overboard just to be sure that they were sure that they were sure that they were not accidentally breaking one of the laws of Moses. So uncleanness and, and contact uncleanness, if you will, were huge deals to the Pharisees. So understand that to Simon, you can't be anything that Jesus and his followers claim him to be and still deign to allow a woman, actually, full stop, much less a woman like this, a woman of ill repute, to touch you. Talk about mandatory social distancing. To be considered holy and keep that standing, you had to reserve all the right purity rituals and avoid contact with everything impure. What Simon fails to see is that in Jesus, something greater than Moses, even, and the law, much less these additional laws, something greater has come. It is too far outside of Simon's thinking to accept that Jesus can't be made unclean by this or any other questionable contact. So Simon's in for a shock at what is about to happen here. 
because what Jesus is about to do is completely implode Simon's tightly held proper religious view of the world. Not only is Jesus immune to contact uncleanness, he's even able to transmit renewed cleanness. We'll get to that in a minute. First, we hear Jesus say to his host, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answers, say it, teacher. You asked for it. Jesus says, a certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now, appreciate, let's take a step back and appreciate Jesus's approach to Simon. He doesn't get up and yell at him. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't even rebuke him, per se. Come at him head on. He simply tells a story and asks a question. Reminds me of how the prophet Nathan went to confront King David after his affair with Bathsheba and the subsequent plot of murder where he murders Uriah. Nathan comes to the king and tells him a story about a wealthy landowner who steals a poor neighbor's only sheep. And when King David gets incensed at the great injustice and declares that the culprit uh, deserves nothing short of death, Nathan says, thou art the man. Similarly, Jesus draws Simon right in by telling the story and pointing to the obvious answer. And when Simon answers correctly, then Jesus takes him to the same thou art the man kind of moment. Jesus says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Simon, you are so self-satisfied in your own righteous stand, in your own edifice of holiness, that you are not even able to see and receive the forgiveness of God. This woman with no pretense whatsoever. You know she's immoral. I know she's immoral. She knows she's immoral. And yet... She sees in me, the Christ, a source, a hope for the forgiveness of all her sins. And so out of a place of faith and hope, she has poured out love. And that's all that God requires. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Through this vignette, as an evangelist, as a herald of the good news of Jesus, St. Luke points us to the central tenet of faith in Jesus. Salvation comes by God's grace alone through faith in Christ alone. As I touched on earlier, through such faith, Jesus has the power to take someone who has been deeply sullied, through their own choices, even, through their brokenness. He has the power to make them clean again.
again. As that great hymn puts it, his blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. So we return to where I began and a final word to you as Christ our hope. Above all things, I believe what this story illustrates for us is the eminence of Jesus above and beyond our conceptions even of who is acceptable and unacceptable. The heart of what Jesus confronts in Simon is that very self-satisfied religious tendency to set ourselves up as the judges of who deserves mercy and who does not. Who should draw near and who should be kept at length. Simon looks on this woman and he thinks, she shouldn't even be in my house. How does she even get in? Much less touching this supposedly holy man. Jesus sees her and says, this is what I came for. Here we return to what is the nugget, the core of who we have been as Christ our hope, Anglican Church. The core which I hope that you will retain into the future. Namely, a Jesus-shaped attitude toward everyone, even, or dare I say, especially those who differ, those that don't compute into our biblically-based, evangelically-shaped way of thinking. Now, I'm not advocating here for a departure from biblical truth or a forfeiture of what we hold to be the truth and the way of Scripture. But over our history, we have held dear the ability to draw in and welcome those who wanted to see Jesus, regardless of their background. We've tried very hard to never set ourselves up as the judges of who should and shouldn't be here. Who deserves and who does not. We've just sought to create the space for people to encounter Jesus. And over the years, as a result, we've former atheists who've come to question their previous commitments because of an encounter with Christ, and because of the way they were loved by this community. Buddhists who've encountered Jesus in a vibrant way and have been drawn into the faith. God-fearers who may not name the name as we do, but who are nevertheless searching and seeking the truth of who God is. See in this story how Jesus receives this woman, not as she should be, but as she is. And how he creates the space for her to lament her sins and turn toward him in faith and worship, pour out love. Not demanding that she clean up her act before she comes in, but receiving her love and her faith such as it is and granting her forgiveness of sins. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters of Christ our hope. This is what we were founded upon. And my prayer and hope for however long the Lord chooses to allow our corporate history to endure, this will be the mark of who we have been, who we are, and who you become those who have made this sacred space for an encounter with the living Christ. 
free of our preconceptions of what that ought to look like, free from our own estimation of how much we deserve, how much we've been given, but that we would recognize that we have been forgiven much and therefore can be encouraged to love much. Not compromising on who we are and what we believe, but receiving any and all who would be hungry to touch, to encounter, to reach out toward Christ and receive and know him as the one whom God has sent for the redemption of all things. Ones who recognize what Simon missed, that Jesus in our midst is greater than the sin and the brokenness and the otherness. That's my prayer. Please pray with me. Lord, may it be so. Amen and amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.